0: Today on Agnews Daily.
1: It was pretty wet through most of July and the front half of August. And then we finished August really, really dry. And we started September really, really dry, which took the Mississippi River back down to stages that are below where it was a year ago in early September.
2: With the Farm Smart podcast, we're not just talking change, we're making change together. Farm Smart is where sustainability meets opportunity. We're helping growers leverage sustainable practices and products to record positive environmental impacts and provide new revenue streams. Tune in to learn more about sustainable ag and the opportunities and incentives that are enabling us to get to the future faster. Get the Farm Smart Podcast on your favorite streaming platform or at com slash farmsmart.
0: Listeners, welcome to the podcast. Middle of the week, September 27th, 2023. Tanner and Delaney here. To kick off your mid-week episode. Anything new, Delaney?
3: I don't think so, Tanner. How about for you?
0: Well, hopefully we've got some new news. Otherwise, uh, they could just listen to yesterday's episode. So let's see if the weather's changed at all. We do have hail and strong winds possible this afternoon for parts of northern Indiana and southern Michigan, according to the National Weather Service. Severe weather isn't expected for the rest of the week after this. Northern Illinois, southern Indiana could see scattered storms that aren't as severe. Heavier showers and thunderstorms may produce some drainage issues in some areas. We will go down to northern Oklahoma. Low humidity and lack of moisture has led to fire fire accelerating conditions. Breezy south winds and warm temperatures uh, during the last couple of days have really caused some fire weather concerns and that is expected to last until Friday, we continue to see Tropical Storm Felipe. His path is continuing to shift. And the National Hurricane Center is watching two other disturbances uh, that we will keep an eye on as well. But that's what I've got for weather to start us off with.
3: Well, Sandra, I don't have any weather-related news, but I do have a fertilizer headline update here. As we saw, average retail fertilizer prices for most fertilizers continued to decline the third week of September, correlating to what Josh Linville shared on the podcast with us last week. However, the price of anhydrous was up fairly significantly, according to DTN trackers. And of course, a significant move is anything greater or less than 5%. At $763 per ton, the average retail price of fertilizer or anhydrous fertilizer was 21% higher than last month. The price of nitrogen fertilizer stayed under $700 per ton for only eight weeks, according to DTN's Fertilizer Price Tracker, and three fertilizer prices saw a significant price decrease. So, Tanner, all in all, most fertilizers across the board continue to push lower. However, anhydrous here really was the wild card.
0: Yeah, that's what it sounds like, a big movement there. The Biden administration announced a big movement for infrastructure safety in regards to rail. They've announced more than $1 billion in spending. The total is $1.4 billion that will go towards 70 projects in 35 different states. We're looking for safety improvements through track improvements, bridge rehabilitation, fewer highway-grade crossings, upgrades to routes that carry hazardous materials, and more. The announcement comes after a series of high-profile rail accidents, including February's derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. None of the funding is going to that community specifically, however, but the administration officials are stating that there will be... Uh, grant opportunities if that town wants to submit an application. Notably, Ohio is getting more than $25 million in program funding. Nebraska will benefit from funding to modernize the Cornhusker Railroad with track improvements and grade crossing updates and rail car repair facilities. Select projects will also improve connectivity and reduce shipping costs throughout the entire nation. We're looking to increase resiliency To extreme weather and other obstacles, and ultimately work on supporting workforce development and reducing emissions. There are more than 200,000 rail crossings in the US, and that is what they're looking to make safer, Delaney.
3: You stole the story right out of my mouth, but uh, related to some other government headlines here, Rod Snyder, a senior advisor for the EPA, said on Monday at the Agricultural Business Council meeting of Kansas City's Ag Outlook Forum, that the EPA was very close to finalizing a permanent ruling for the sales of E15 year-round in eight Midwestern states by the end of the year. The requests from the governors of Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin would be provided a more permanent solution for year-round E15. He said the request is very technical and more technical than an emergency waiver and falls under a different mechanism of the Clean Air Act where the governors were asking for these adjustments. Uh, He said he's not making any promises, but he said the EPA is really close to sending the final rule to the White House Office of Management and Budget for final review. So we may see a finalized ruling here, Tanner, before the end of the year. Of course, the one caveat to consider as I was thinking about this the other day when I was filling up at the pump is there are still quite a few, um, quite a few gasoline providers here, especially in the state of Iowa, that don't carry E15 year round. So while we may see this ruling come through, there's going to be some infrastructure needs that have to happen to support that E15 year round.
0: That's correct. Yeah, I have also been noticing that too. It looks like Farm Journal or agweb.com caught up with an Iowa farmer that has a couple of the first ever John Deere plows made by Mr. Deere himself. It says the family bought the plows directly from John Deere, and the first plow only cost how much, do you think, Delaney? $50. $24. The family history of twin holy grails according to the ag industry a pair of steel moldboard plows crafted by the flesh and hands of John Deere bought directly to the American Titans Illinois shop in 1839 and 1840 are now on Sam Schaff's Iowa farm one of the oldest farms in the state of Iowa Delaney a thousand acre farm. That has continued to stick in the family through seven generations, almost eight, as Sam's kids would be the next to take over. Uh, Continuing to look at where these plows came from, they they are now touted to be the first plows west of the Mississippi River. The oldest continuous farm in Iowa is now overseen by Sam, and he loves the history, continues to dive deeper and deeper, his great-great-great-grandfather had purchased the first plow in 1839 and neighbors quickly saw how effective it was to where they would borrow this ox-driven ox, plow, ox driven plow at nighttime, plowing by lantern and return it back to his great-great-great-grandfather uh, each day so they could continue to take over the 240-acre parcel of land that he paid. How much do you think per acre his uh, ancestors paid for that 240-acre farm, Delaney?
3: um 70 dollars an acre
0: a dollar 25 so yes uh sam is quoted here to say that his family history gets richer with every generation and i would argue if you bought that land at a dollar 25 i think you could probably just say his family gets richer at every generation, so uh, quite an interesting story there to see where these plows ended up and the fact that they've stayed in each other, in their family throughout this entire time is a unique story to share.
3: Well, that is an interesting story to share for sure, Tanner, I was a little off in my guessing today.
0: Well, I had no idea, I just had the benefits of, you know, the text in front of me.
3: Well, regardless, uh, that was a fun article, so thanks for sharing that today. A couple other comments here from the White House, specifically coming out of USDA Secretary Vilsack, who discussed the issue of foreign ownership of U.S. agricultural land and businesses during a recent White House briefing. He said that in anticipation of the upcoming Senate Agriculture Committee hearing on Wednesday, he responded to some questions about whether the purchase of U.S. farmland by specifically Chinese entities poses a threat to national security or food security. And Vilsack did express some concern, particularly regarding instances such as the Chinese interests acquiring land near military installments, such as that going on in North Dakota. And he said he also emphasized the need for greater engagement in the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Uh, Tanner, it's interesting, though, that this story pops up. As our listeners know I was in DC a few weeks ago with a group of international farmers and this was a question a lot of them had was can I as a farmer from Brazil or the UK or wherever buy farmland in the United States um and it was interesting to hear you know people from the United States answering that question very differently because yes technically you can for now however it is still state by state dependent
0: yeah that's uh gonna continue to be an interesting thing for us to watch because there's even been conversations around aims about uh, the industrial corridor for manufacturing facilities and what type of corporations can build and utilize the rail spur there as well gonna hit russia and ukraine headlines here a video was released by russia that appears to show its black sea fleet commander alive and well this comes just days after we reported that he had been killed in a strike on the fleet's headquarters in Crimea. Now the Ukraine military is providing clarifying statements once they gather more information in regards to this commander. So a little bit of misrost. We'll just go with crossed communication there as far as headlines go, Delaney. Russia is constructing a new railway of their own that will link the occupied city of Maripol and Donetsk to Russia. Ukrainian officials have been monitoring this progress and it may be a new target for them. A Kremlin salesper- or so- spokesperson, not a salesperson, that would be quite interesting, right? Selling people to come uh, and be on the side of the Kremlin. Stated that the US Abram tanks will not be an effective weapon. Analysts expect the modern tanks to add a powerful ground component to Kiev's forces, but Russia is stating they have plans already in place to counter offense those front lines. CNN obtained an exclusive interview to the front line using. Uh, conversations with the drone operations unit as Ukrainian troops are making an offensive near the city of Bakhmut. So we'll continue to keep an eye on what is going on. But lastly, the Ukrainian Football Association has pledged to not take part in soccer competitions featuring Russian teams. They decided to readmit the country's youth teams to European tournaments, and asked for cooperation of other footballing bodies in taking the same stance against Russia's youth soccer program. I was quite surprised to hear that, Delaney, that they had uh, the desire to restart this program. But of course, if you can make life as normal as possible, why wouldn't you try? But that's what I've got for headlines today.
3: Well, Tanner, and just another short headline there to add to the Russia-Ukraine story, as you reported on earlier this week, of course, the ban for Ukrainian grain coming out of that area into uh, neighboring countries is lifted. However, countries from the EU's eastern wing on Tuesday called on the European Commission to continue to boost checks and set up more stringent rules about getting Ukrainian grain out of the country. But it does sound at least like those countries are now willing to negotiate a little bit with Ukraine to help them out to some extent. But uh, they're definitely doing it with more stringent regulations than maybe they previously were, Tanner. So that is the last little headline update I have here aside from markets. What do you say? Let's see where they're at. Well the overnights today certainly are looking a little bit more favorable than they were yesterday's as the December corn contract is up a penny and a half at 4.81 new crop soybeans up 4 cents today at 13.06 and 3 quarters December hard red winter wheat down a penny and a quarter at 7.09 and a quarter spring wheat in the December contract up a penny and a quarter at 7.67 and 3 quarters and Chicago December wheat down a penny and a half at 587 and a half. Tanner, as we look at livestock and where they ended yesterday, October live cattle shed $2.17 and a half cents at a buck 84.80. October feeder cattle shed the limit at 4.95, closing out the day at 25387 and October lean hogs added 10 cents to close out at 81.62 and a half. Tanner, as we head into the heart of harvest season, we are chatting weather today and what farmers can expect in the fields with Eric Snodgrass.
2: With the Farm Smart podcast, we're not just talking change; we're making change together. Farm Smart is where sustainability meets opportunity. We're helping growers leverage sustainable practices and products to record positive environmental impacts and provide new revenue streams. Tune in to learn more about sustainable ag. And the opportunities and incentives that are enabling us to get to the future faster. Get the Farm Smart podcast on your favorite streaming platform or at slash farm smart.
3: Well, folks, we are chatting today with Eric Snodgrass, science fellow for Nutrient Ag Solutions. Eric, it's been a little while since we've had you on the podcast, but uh, appreciate you hopping on with us this morning.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on again.
3: So Eric, as we look at this past growing season, we heard a lot of reports from farmers about variability as far as rain and temperatures go. Do a little uh, reflection on this past growing season for us.
1: Yeah, so if we think, you know, primarily about the Midwest, the corn and soybean belt, it was a situation where we had a very wet spring till about May 10th. And then we didn't have any precipitation from May 10th to June 28th when the drought broke. And then it was pretty wet through most of July and the front half of August. And then we finished August really, really dry. And we started September really, really dry, which took the Mississippi River back down to stages that are below where it was a year ago in early September. That's the big overview. The big thing is we did not see excessive heat. During the really dry stretches that we saw back in uh, May and June, which prevented, I think, more crop damage than than otherwise. But still, you can't grow a huge crop with that kind of setup. Even though the rains were timely in July, it wasn't though it it wasn't as though it came through and wiped out the drought entirely. So we still have quite a bit of drought across the Midwest. In fact, fifty five percent of the lower forty eight is in drought, and uh, as a result, we're going to continue to be monitoring that going forward. Now, outside of that, if you go down south, like into Texas, they endured incredible heat and drought, uh, basically starting around the beginning of July and lasting to the beginning of September. Uh, but outside of that, that was kind of the mainstay of what we saw. And really what it was a result of was the repositioning of a Bermuda high while an El Nino kind of built in the in the background and didn't fully engage in the pattern until right about now, actually. So Yeah, that is uh, that summarizes what for a lot of folks was just a very chaotic growing season with a lot of hit or miss storms, a lot of folks missing out on rainfall that they needed, of course. And then when the rains did come in, some of them came in at three or four inches at a time. So this will be a year we look back on and try to assess what what we've gained in terms of sea technology and soil health improvements to kind of combat these type of weather events. But at the same time, we'll look at what could have been and then what it, uh, you know, what, what we ultimately got and compare the two.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that we're going to do is, you know, our growers and listeners reflect back as they look at the yield monitor and and take a look at the data they've collected. But what does harvest look like going forward for the Midwest?
1: Yeah, I think we're kind of in a pattern right now that I would call week on, week off. And what I mean by that is I don't see any large-scale blocking features to shut the pattern down and leave it in one way or another. That could either be really, really dry or really, really wet. So for a lot in the Midwest, even though there's a pesky upper-level load that's going to move across Illinois today over in Indiana and Ohio tomorrow, um, outside of that, we're relatively dry while the West Coast is really wet. But then we look into week two, so you know, really that, uh, let's call it the first 10 days of October, and we start to see better chances of rain coming back through the Midwest, which means if you have a harvest window open up, you just need to take advantage of it. I don't see any major cold to start October, but usually when we have an El Nino building, at some point in m- mid-October, we get a pretty good you know, outbreak of colder air that'll come through. Will that happen this year? There's some indications that it will, but it may not be right away. It may be past the middle of the month in October that we get that, but that would be right on time for our first frost. And to be honest, because of how quickly the crop matured and then how quickly it dried down, there's not a lot of people that are worried about an early frost event this year compared to previous years. So I would just make a recommendation that when the windows open, uh, just go after it because it might close up the next week and chase you out of the fields for a few days.
3: Eric, when we look at the weather, larger weather pattern, you know, we were in a La Nina for quite some time, shifting into an El Nino now, but I've recently read some stories that, the El Nino has been weakening as of lately. What does that mean? And are we actually in a weakening El Nino pattern?
1: Well, a lot of times what people use to assess whether an El Nino is weakening is, in my opinion, the wrong thing. They look only at ocean temperatures. And remember, the ocean temperature pattern is the, is the, the result or the symptom to what the atmosphere is doing. So what I pay attention to are what the trade winds are doing, because ultimately every El Nino or La Nina event is a result of a change in the speed of the trade winds. And as I see it, we're right now expecting to continue to have this El Nino develop. It's not developing as fast as the Australians say it's going to develop. But I do think that NOAA's got a good handle on it, probably somewhere around one and a half to two degrees Celsius above average in the ocean temperatures, which would indicate that the trade winds are going to be such that they're going to be weak and probably keep something called the MJO out into the Pacific ocean. Now, what does all of that mean? I could rattle off these phrases and terminology all day long, but the result is this. It tends to give us a bit more of an active, what we call subtropical jet. That's the one that comes from Hawaii, goes into California Mexico, goes across the Southern tier of the US and then curls up the East coast. It tends to later in the season split the polar jet. It tends to go over the Northwest, but then dive into the Great Lakes area, which tends to give us a much more active storm season farther to the south. So think south, mid-south, part of the Midwest, part of the Ohio Valley, and then definitely in the southeast. The Pacific Northwest tends to be drier than normal. We also tend to see more mild days than cold days, but El Nino years always have highly variable temperatures. So when when we get to February and we say, well, what did winter look like? We would go back and we'd probably count up more mild days than colder days, but we are expecting to get some really good shots at colder air, which are often controlled by other things like the polar vortex and stuff like that. I will say this, if I got to dial it up, how I want it. Um, I like El Nino winters, especially because of the better chances of being more mild farther to the north into the middle of winter. And the reason for that is it prevents, you know, deep freezes in the soil early. Now, traditionally we like deep freezes in the soil, but Given our current soil moisture deficits, the longer we can keep that soil unfrozen, uh, like in Iowa, Wisconsin, parts of Illinois, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Minnesota, the longer we can keep it unfrozen, the better the chances are of getting some of that late fall, early winter moisture back into the soil so that we can recover and not have to worry about it going into next year. So that's my long-winded answer to your short question as to what I think is going to happen based upon this current El Nino.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that because it drew another question in my mind. We've reported a lot on the low river levels and what that's going to do for transportation issues potentially both for grain and fertilizer. What's it going to take? Do we have a possibility of regaining the capacity of moving those goods down the river?
1: Yeah, it takes quite a bit. Um in other words, it, it you know, it took us most of of the second half of August and most of September to get the river levels as low as they are. It's probably going to take another 30 to 40 days if we have persistent rains to bring it back up. This past weekend's rains are helping. We've already seen it stop its loss, but it's still hovering between about 8 and 10 feet below low stage. Now, last year, it reached its lowest point in October, in late October, October 20th, in fact, and I don't think that's going to happen this year. I'll tell you this. I've talked to some folks that are down there in the Delta and then coming up to the mid, mid-South and they're asking me, can we just get a hurricane, a slow mover that comes in and just fills it back up. And I'm like, if I could dial that up for you, I would, but uh, I think there'd be a lot of people that'd be unhappy that we just put a hurricane over that part of the country, but that would do it much faster. Uh, but I don't see that happening. The Gulf has been very inactive this year in terms of developing systems outside of Harold and Idalia. And so nothing's come up the gut of the Mississippi. So I would anticipate that most of October, you'll continue to talk about lower river levels. But will it be closer to zero to five feet below low stage or closer to 10 feet below low stage? I'm favoring the closer to zero to five feet um, once we get into, uh, you know, mid-October, which is when it really matters.
3: So, Eric, you mentioned that you prefer a El Nino winter. So walk us through what that El Nino winter for this year is going to look like.
1: So I would tell you to watch out for a preferred storm track for these four types of storms. You ready? The first one's called, and it's got a great name, but it's called the Panhandle Hooker. It starts off in the Panhandles and it hooks into Arkansas and then heads over the Appalachian Mountains. That's a source region for low pressure development. That means a lot of wet weather South and Mid-South and parts of the Midwestern Ohio Valley. The second one is called uh, the Low. Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas. It starts there, goes straight toward Paducah, comes up through Ohio and exits New England. That again is a good storm to be bringing in quite a bit of moisture into some areas that desperately need it. You then have what are called your Miller A and your Miller B storm tracks. The Miller B starts off somewhere around Paducah, maybe over toward Lexington, and then goes straight off to the east coast and heads north. And then the Miller A is a Gulf Coast system. Now, all of those, if you notice, are down south. During El Nino years, we tend to have fewer strong clipper systems which come out of Canada. And as a result, that's what tends to limit the repeat shots of colder air and tends to make them much more brief. But that doesn't mean we don't get snow. That doesn't mean we don't get winter precipitation. It just means that the polar branch of the jet stream at times might have to give way to a much stronger subtropical branch of the jet stream if this El Nino plays out as we're anticipating.
0: That's interesting. I am going to take this out of the U.S., though, because I want to start talking South America. Is the rainy season about to get started, or how are things looking over there?
1: Yeah, so if you looked at the last Friday planting progress in Mato Grosso, you know we're still under 2%, but that's normal. October is the big month for planting in central and northern Brazil. The problems in southern Brazil right now is that it's been extremely wet. We've had major flooding in Rio Grande do Sul. There's been flooding in parts of Parna, Paraguay, Uruguay, northern Argentina. And I don't see that slowing down in the near term. Uh, but we're waiting about another week for decent rains to start to move into Brazil. But what will happen is you'll get growers that will plant on a forecast of rain, but they'll plant in some drier conditions waiting on it. What's interesting about this year was back in late August, there was a big kind of unplanned, I guess you could say, rainfall event that hit a lot of central and northern Brazil. Now that rain came through, it was put through the soil pretty quickly and then things dried out, but we usually don't have that in late August. So it's just kind of an interesting kind of side note to what we're expecting now. So if we just take El Nino at its core value, we tend to be a bit drier the closer we get to the Amazon. We tend to be wetter in southern Brazil and Argentina, and that seems to be the way things are playing out. But I know that Brazilians this year are going to want to plant very aggressively, regardless of ideal weather conditions, because they want to get the first crop in fast so that there's no compression to their crop calendar, meaning that they can start harvesting beans in January, really maybe even late December, but mostly in January, be done by early February so that the safrina crop is planted, which is mostly corn, as you know. So that they're not worried about what El Nino sometimes does in April, which is to slow the monsoon down early. But if you just said boil it down into simple terms, El Nino years tend to give us a little bit more of a drier risk north and wetter risk south in Brazil. But does it really have a massive impact on yields? You can look and historically correlate and the answer you'd find is that honestly, we we make too big of a deal out, about, out of El Nino in central and northern Brazil. It's more of a southern Brazil, Argentina feature, and uh, aligning is what they fear down there.
3: Eric, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with your newsletter or how to find you, uh, share a little bit of the resources that you put out there.
1: Uh, the best place to go, and it's free, so just go to agweather.com. That's ag-wx.com. And go out there on your computer, and what you'll find on that website right across the top is where you can watch. I produce a daily video about the weather. It goes out on YouTube. I have some forecasting tools on there, a bunch of maps, and then you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. It comes out on Monday, midday. Just kind of get you ideas on the bigger picture things. Yeah, it's all free. Nutrient just kind of puts it out there for us to consume. It's one of the biggest risk factors in uh, farming, so we just want to make sure that we've got good information out there for people to consume. So yeah, my video today, by the way, all about the flavor of this El Nino, just some perspective on what we think it's going to mean for this upcoming, uh, you know, winter time period for us and growing season for South America.
3: Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to check that out, but Eric, thanks again for joining us today. Oh, yeah, you bet.
1: Have a good one.
0: Well, thanks to Eric for hanging out with us. Always one of my favorite people to talk to, especially when they can give some very clear predictions as to where weather patterns may take us. It'll be interesting to see if they play out because a week dry, week wet off and on is going to be a very painful pattern for some of our farmer producers.
3: Absolutely. It's going to be a challenging harvest ahead for some. So we certainly appreciate you listening to Ag News Daily while you're getting through this harvest season.
0: Absolutely. But for today, what do you say? Should we let them go?
3: Let's let them go.